Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. I journeyed up to a shop in Van Nuys a few years back to meet a guy I'd read about somewhere. It appeared he was doing interesting things with Broncos and Jeep-like 4x4s, building, converting, whatever. I just thought the stuff looked unique and ultra cool. A bit later, I wound back up to his new location in Chatsworth, a northern suburb of Los Angeles. I got to drive one of his newest creations, an electric bicycle that looked like a 1918 board track racer. 30 miles an hour, easy to ride, just pure lust. I wanted one. He sold out. Damn it. Just back from a field trip to see him again with project after project in the works. Some top secret, some simply ultra fun. I was astonished how much Icon 4x4 has grown since moving from Van Nuys to that Chatsworth location. Jonathan, his wife, and their team are happily pushing the envelope of Southern California thinking on what cars were and what they can again become. As always, Jonathan Ward was gracious with his time, and we talked a good bit about running his business, what's happening in car culture, and why people are looking for something different. Jonathan Ward of Icon 4x4, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Thanks hey, for having me. Listen, Jonathan, last week was, it, it's it's always eye-opening. Every time I've just seen this thing more from where you were in the small shop, and I think you had like uh, 12 or 13 or 14,000 square feet. And how many, how, how big is your shop now? 79,000 square feet. Good God. No wonder, no wonder I get lost now every time I'm in your shop. Your, as I understand it, your background is in design. Is that right? It is, but I mean, only self-appointed design, meaning I have absolutely no right to put that on my business card or for that matter to do anything I do. I'm just a constant tinker and I am inspired by design throughout the eras and so many different platforms. So I'm not qualified. I just followed my dreams and started the company and kept running. So, so... Were you interested in cars as a child or where where'd that come about? Yeah, my dad was a car guy. My mom's father had an old school corner gas station repair shop car dealership in a tiny town in the Chesapeake Bay. So it's always been in my blood and uh, my early memories, you know, going on East Coast road trips and uh, seeing colorful lineups of, you know, hot rods onto their weekend show or meet. I, I remember really being drawn to that. And then when I moved to New York City, perhaps there was less automotive inspiration. But at the same time, inspiration was everywhere from you know, architecture and findings and details and design. And that really kind of opened my eyes up and widened my appreciation for industrial design at large. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, moved to California, back deep into car culture. And uh, ever since then, I, I've always had... Uh, almost a, a curse of a very open mind and eye. So kind of I see my job partially is, is trying to elevate transportation design out of this death cycle trend of value engineering and, and just the commoditization of all elements, in part by bringing in all those inspirations that I see and, and then kind of fusing them cohesively in a transportation platform. So if I'm hearing you right, the inspiration for Icon 4 by was the design element or your interest in the details and all of the stuff that kind of made cars, at least to you, attractive and fun. You got it. So how did you and your wife, so you take this, and I know your wife is your business partner as well. So how did you take this love of design and uh, all of those things and turn this into building some of the biggest, baddest four buys in the world? Well, it started with our first brand, which is called TLC, which is on its 20th year. That's all vintage Toyota Land Cruisers. So Mm. that premise was a lot smarter in its simplicity, but at that time, I'm a, I'm a big, big traveler, and I, I discovered that in so many different countries, especially in harsh terrain, remote locales, um, 
when it really was a life or death appreciation for a, a, a vehicle, the love for the Land Cruiser was just epic. So mm-hmm. originally, I, I was just trying to win a bet with some friends at a business class at USC, all based on the argument of supply and demand and its relevance today. And I said, well, I think it's kind of BS because if you can control the supply, we have the tools at hand today to create the demand. So, you know, in the 90s, early 90s, no one was really restoring Land Cruisers. At, at, at best, they'd put a $500 paint job, some shiny wheels, get it running by throwing in that old 350 sitting in the back of the garage uh-huh. from some other project, blah, blah, blah. And that's that was it. Okay. So my supply and demand uh, argument turned into a bet where I was to drive up a, a, a market within two quarters that was trackable. And at that time, I had the the capital and the time to just go on road trips and start loading up 18-wheelers with the best FJ40s I could find. And this was 20 years ago? Yeah. Okay. So brought them back, dialed them in, went to resell them. Should have won the bet, although those bums would never make good on their uh, (laughs) thousand bucks, I think it was. And uh, yeah, that's still outstanding. But around the same time, my wife and I both were really kind of disenchanted with our career paths and kind of dispassionate about them and, and realizing really mostly from watching my own father bust his butt his whole life mm-hmm. um, and what he did and why he did it, the why he did it, why he was passionate about it really kind of never materialized in it as a true career path. Um, so we, we decided with really no intelligent forethought, SWOT analysis, planning, business plan, nothing, literally like 20 grand in cash, five trucks and a couple credit cards to start TLC with the very simple premise of restoring vintage Land Cruisers with the respect they deserve, with mm-hmm. the respect people treat you know vintage cars with. Uh-huh. So after, you know that took off. We got really lucky. It was right around the birth of the internet. People appreciated our our, our style and our standards, and that just kind of kept going and growing. And then it was from that and my relative boredom with that over time, and wanting to engage more design and more engineering challenges, that I started Icon uh, many years later. So you, you felt that that helped you make the leap is getting that that experience under your belt. Yeah, the experience, the contacts, the, the sublet relationships, the, that deeper knowledge of that specific vehicle because really the idea behind Icon is, I guess, obvious, but it's it's revisiting classic design in a modern context. So while we saw people were, you know, like us, in love with the, the aesthetic beauty and purposefulness of the old Land Cruisers, a lot of people were not so in love with the vintage archaic charm. So, you know, we had started doing, you know, modifications, but like the rest of the industry had at the time. So better brakes, bolt-on suspension, V8, etc. But from an engineer's perspective, I thought, well, I mean, this is kind of the same way people have been patching them together since the 70s or 60s. And I thought there'd be a better way that would take a lot more responsibility and that we needed to digitize and get CAD control, 3D model control of the platform and then kind of start over again and re-engineer everything in chorus. So that was really the the drive behind Icon was not only that realization, but sort of the perfect storm of combining technologies that came together to make that reverse engineering effort more feasible than, I mean, even five years before I started, it really wasn't a viable business. And fortunately for us, um, those resources have just continued to grow, as have the relationships with those hardware and software purveyors that uh, really helped us constantly improve and evolve that process. And, you know, Jonathan, I've been, obviously, I've sat in your office a couple of times. I've, I've been to your shop now, I think, three hey, times. Hey, Dave, you'd be proud. I cleaned my office this week. <laughs> every, the- every 10 years, it's high time. And it's amazing. You, you can know, actually- that's, that's funny because every time I'm in your office, I look around in there and I was telling my wife, Laura, I said, this is how I envision my office should look because it is. It's uh, 
I, you're surrounded by car pictures and car parts and stuff. I don't even know where that stuff came from. I just think it's really, really cool to see. And when people visit your shop, it's wonderful to see the shop area itself. But you got to sit in your office with a cup of coffee and just <laughs> it's just fun. Yeah, the, the office is run by people cleaner than me. My shop foreman we call Martha for Martha Stewart. Uh. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I don't let him in my office. And my wife's appalled by my office, but that's cool. That's wives. Um, yeah. You know, I, I need to step back for just one second and talk about Icon 4 by and all of your products. I know you've done a Land Rover Defender. You, you're also you're so in, interested and involved with the 4 by 4 stuffs. But you, you, you guys have morphed into this derelicts and reformers. So we covered a little bit about your 4 bys. Tell me about that Land Rover Defender. Is that something ongoing or is that a one-off? Oh, God, no, not ongoing. I, I have a love-hate thing with pretty much every British manufactured vehicle I've uh -oh. ever uh -oh. taken apart. So, no, that, that was a one-off. We've done two. We did a NAS 110 large four-door, and we did a D90, the small two-door. Um, I love the like front three-quarter aesthetic is magical. But the execution is just they should be ashamed of themselves. And even when we, we go through major efforts to kind of evolve and re-engineer and improve upon them, you know, I, my shop, the team that does the DNRs, as we call them, the derelicts and reformers, have literally threatened mutiny, shall I ever opt to do another one again. <laughs> so, so I opened the door and you walked through the words derelicts and reformers. And of course, anybody can go to your website and we'll give them the information afterwards. But, but let's start with reformers. Tell me about reformers is how you see them and what you do with these things. All right. Well, I mean, basically the brand premise, long term, I want to revisit classic transportation in a modern context on many different levels in various industrial arts segments. But Vehicles are my core passion. Land cruisers were my core passion, passion, and knowledge base. So when we started Icon, it was simply to revisit the FJ40. Hmm. Over time, we've added other production models, using the term lightly, to include four variations of the FJ. Of our version of the first generation early Bronco and our version of the 1947-53 Chevrolet Thriftmaster 510 pickup. Then, again... Being the geek that I am, I got bored and said, hey, well, wouldn't it be fun? So we started doing these one-offs because, again, I'm a major automotive historian, car geek. I've always collected a wide range of classic vehicles, not just four-bys. So as a brand, I was sensitive to getting pigeonholed as the four-by guy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Thriftmaster was sort of our first soft baby step into people understanding that. But with the derelicts and reformers, 90% of them are two-wheel drive. So the reformers basically are a concourse restored, every nut and bolt, balls out restoration of a vintage vehicle, primarily 1930s to 1960s, although there have been some variants on that, that date range. And what we do is we massively re-engineer the mechanical experience and the interior design and ergonomics and insulation and safety and emissions and perversions of creature comforts people feel they just can't live without anymore having been corrupted by their modern cars. But the oh. end goal is to make it look like we didn't do anything. So okay. the stock is possible, although I take some liberties with more more with certain eras than others, which is an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, send them down the road looking dead stock. And then people are surprised by the performance, but it's not like a, a resto mod or a hot rod or a street rod or pro touring or pro street or any of the pre-existing segments. Mm -hmm. The derelicts, which is where the one-offs started, again, arrogantly, passionately, stupidly pick a word because I wanted a vehicle that I didn't have to worry about scratching. If I saw a dirt road I wanted to go down, I could go down it sideways if I wanted and not worry about paint chips, take to the beach, not worry about surfboards, skateboards, dogs, kids, just all the mechanical beauty of an evolved re-engineered vintage, but no responsibility for the exterior. So I built a 52 Chrysler Town & Country wagon with a DeSoto front clip that's now become somewhat cult famous. 
And it wasn't until that was done that I went, duh, this makes sense for Icon. This could be fun to keep building. We came up with the name Derelict and we kept going. So the idea is Uber Barn Fine, Killer Patina, great integrity, massively re-engineered, but not evident, well, unless you know cars and you see the ZR rims and tires, not evident at first glance. You almost wonder if it even drives when you first see it. See, this is what is amazing. I was, uh, when, when I and my team were up in your shop the other day, here's this 58 Rolls-Royce, 1958 Rolls-Royce, and it looks weathered, like, is, is like as politely. It, it looks weathered. And, and, and yet, um, when the guy took it down on the lift, uh, well, first I'd seen the underside of the car. You could eat off of it. And then the, uh, uh, the motor, how, uh, why did you just decide to stuff? What did you put in the car? Well, I mean, all of those projects start with a, you know, their commission. So everything you saw in the building mm-hmm. is built to order for someone. And then that's a discussion with that client. So, like, let's take the roles for a, a good example. You know, that conversation could start. And, you know, a lot of people have sort of an instinct or traditional thought of, oh, we can't put something else in. It's got to be a roles and a roles. Mm-hmm. Right. So that probably is where we start that conversation. But for me, I really could give a rat's bottom about what the conventional approaches would be, hence the creation of the brand. So, like, I would start in that case by explaining, okay, yeah, we could do like the new Wraith powertrain, but here's what you need to consider. We're going to have to hack proprietary software and write new code to override that system to make that powertrain, which is CAN bus electronics, very complicated, make it think it's still in its native platform. So even after you finish paying for all the non-reoccurring engineering for us to make that happen, then you still have the liability of where the heck do you have it serviced? Because the Rolls dealer is going to take one look at you and tell you to get off his property. Mm-hmm. Independent mechanics aren't going to have the scan tools, the experience, or the access to the parts. So hopefully that first paragraph talks them out of that traditional approach. And then if we're really just talking about building something as robust, lightweight, high performance, low service intervals, low parts cost, ease of service, great technician understanding globally, that almost invariably leads us to the GM performance class of uh, usually LS. So LT1, LT4, LS9, LS6, LS7. Corvette motors. Yeah, Corvette and, and similar platforms. So mm-hmm. after uh, after that discussion, we landed for this vehicle on the LS7 wet sump. And um, I don't know, I was kind of inclined to do the LS9, but the client thought the horsepower of this one is just perfectly appropriate, and I'm sure it will be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we engineer, we, we discuss full mechanical, uh, suspension, uh, rack ratio, uh, brake feedback, pedal feel, performance standards, uh, suspension, tuning, vehicular stance, rims, tires, all of that is engineering discussions done with the client. Granted, I, I try, I have to be, I guess, a bit of a bully to make sure when it leaves here, it's something that, that we feel is appropriate. And then uh, we engineer it in CAD and then we build a print and hope that uh, pans out and uh, takes about a year and a half to get her done. Jonathan, who's your average guy or gal? Because I remember there, uh, I'm thinking there, there's got to be some female clients you have as well. Yeah. But let's say it's the average couple. So who comes to you and tells you, is this, is this by phone? Is this by internet? Hey, I saw a 58 roller or I saw this car that I want you to work on. How does that, how does that come about? You know, it's weird to me because more often than not, it happens via the internet and maybe phone calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering the rampant misrepresentation of capability and business ethic in our lovely business segment i'm amazed no, no comment yeah no comment. yeah, I, yeah. I, i'm blown away and then i'm amazed people trust me mm-hmm. um, but our mm-hmm. reputation is hard-earned and quite stellar so i guess that helps but mm-hmm. um i prefer if they get their butt over to the shop and, and come tour and they'll get a much deeper understanding of what we're about and what our capabilities are but you know sometimes they, it, it's nostalgic in principle and they come with a very specific vehicle because of 
a travel experience, a relative having had one or they having had one or yearned for one in their youth, sort of holy grail cars of, uh -huh. of use, stuff like that. But surprisingly enough, they come with just, obviously they're expensive to create, so they come with the funding. Mm -hmm. uh, quite interestingly, the vast majority of them have the funds because they built something themselves from the ground up ah, and interesting. quite successful, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of technical industry people, be it um, ITIP, industrial design, uh, electronics engineers, which again, I really appreciate. Um, and it's just, it's almost like, and I didn't really plan this, but it's almost as if we're creating a new opportunity for car geeks to get into something where maybe they've just stuck with new cars because it was safe. Uh -huh. It was reliable. It was a known entity. Or if they did dive into a classic, they bought the absolute best example they could find of whatever their classic dream was. And they drove it. And after two miles, they were like, ah, oh, shucks, this sucks. You know, the, the mind's eye versus the reality of driving, you know, vehicles of decades of age are often quite opposite from, from one another. Mm -hmm. So then the idea that we can provide sort of a hybrid of new performance and reliability with the vintage aesthetic and they come in very excited. Um, and, and literally sometimes we just start narrowing it down via, okay, country of origin or even continent of origin decade of style interests and then I start drilling down usually trying to talk them into something that was already on my a list mm -hmm. but in some cases learning about new platforms through my clients and um, you know lookbooks and renders and blah 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 until we focus on a vehicle and then I put out an APB with my hunters and we track the vehicle down bring it in laser scan it and get started now my my I was I'm crawling all over your site because I honestly it's fascinating um, and my first Ferrari was a 250 GTE I think it was a 62 or 63 and you had one on your site not certain if it's still there or not that was ready for conversion so take take me through that process so I see this GTE and you've got the glass and the body and all that stuff but but you're saying hey we can build it better we can we can build this thing so you can use it every day what what's the process well it's all I love all the stories involved in what we do oftentimes just in why the vehicle came into our hands or its own history that vehicle was taken off the road in the 70s to be rebodied as a GTO because they obviously share the same yep. chassis and mechanical. Yep, uh, very common. So the guy we got it from was a large collector who had it, and he was going to put it through a bandsaw, cut the side of it off, paint it red, and put it up on the wall in his man cave in his poker room. So I got wind of that story and put the brakes on it and talked him into selling it to me with um, condition being I provided the CAD CAM data and a resource for him to get a carbon fiber one made to put up on his wall. Ah. So it's it's a really nice opportunity to purist be damn because I have no chassis or VIN or powertrain to do whatever the heck I want. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I left it on the site for now, but we did recently sell it, although I don't know if the money's in yet, hence it being on the site. Uh -huh. And... Um, we're going to do a very classic traditional build. We have about 15 subtle body mods planned that are things that we know Pininfarina did not intend to be on the car that were last minute changes for financial or ventilation reasons. Mm -hmm. Then we take a couple other liberties, grabbing some 330 America and other design details from Ferrari of the era. Uh -huh. And we're going to hand build a four-wheel independent chassis and 440 horse LS3, but dressed uh, with an old style Ferrari oval track, you know, baked wrinkle finish, air cleaner, and custom valve covers and stuff to make it blend in more. Custom one off Baranis, one off uh, Brembos all the way around, one off Borla exhaust, uh, really nice creative classic colors, uh, AC navigation, rack and pinion power steering, um, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's going to be a really interesting project to do. And, and, and I think you're a lot like me. I really don't care that the Ferrari Club of America or Ferrari people are saying, my God, you, you do anything other than Ferrari. Um, it's heresy. Uh, you don't sound like you care much either. Not really. And when my guy blows by 
the row of flatbeds on the side of the road picking up <laughs> owners club cars because they all shit themselves and feed on the way to Pebble Beach. I might pull over and give them a ride because I don't hold any grudges. <laughs> At the end of the day, my car will be lighter, better handling, better weight balance, easier to maintain, longer lasting, more fuel efficient, and just plain more fun to experience, which is the whole point. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. I, I, I like pissing off purists. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Are you stuck in a particular... I, I know for me personally, I love Art Deco. There's something about that. And I know so many, so many people are like that. But you said 30s to 50s. Uh, where, where are you stuck at? Do you have a particular era that just drives you crazy? Well, there's aspects of all that I really appreciate. So I, I, if I had to pick a high point, I love streamlined, modern... Um, you know, late deco, streamlined, modern uh, language and transportation. So like Gordon Burig's work, Buckminster Fuller, uh, maybe some of the earlier Raymond Lowy work. And in fact, I've, I've developed a couple conceptual vehicles that were based on a bunch of questions no one's bothered to ask unless they're lunatics like me. But one of which was the founding of, okay, what if the Industrial Revolution had not changed um, – manufacturing and, and product and branding priorities to quantity or held uh, in higher regard over quality. And what if Streamline Modern had not been cut short as a design language due to um, the depression? Like what would the high point of that language been? So I, I often, no matter what the era of design, I like to, to bring up theoreticals that become foundations for the perspective from which I will design or modify that vehicle. So, you know, like we're doing a 70 Superbird and let's admit it, transportation in 70 was kind of a whorehouse in quality and application and material choice. You have to tell me how you feel, Jonathan. Open up. Open okay. Up. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, Mies van der Rohe, I, I've always thought was just a hero of that design era. Uh-huh. So I spent a lot of time and money getting my education better on him, buying many annual design reviews and books on him and we actually decided to try and put ourselves in his theoretical shoes for our design perspective on all aspects of that vehicle that we were going to re-engineer and I find that to be really helpful with the continuity but also a really fun challenge you know depending on the era of the vehicle it gives you sort of a jumping off point to help organize your thoughts. And am I am I wrong here? But it would seem to me, and boy, I don't know anything about this stuff. The older the car, the more difficult it is to convert. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, but it's it's interestingly not necessarily so until you get to the 30s. So, hmm. like you know, Cadillac 1937 and older, absolute train wreck. Uh, some British cars uh, going later into the 40s and in some cases into the early 50s train wreck. Um, reason being uh, steel manufacturing process and how cutting edge the manufacturer may have been. So if it's too early of a vehicle in that it has a wooden substructure for the body with sheet metal rolled and literally nailed to it. Kind of like Morgan nothing, maybe? Yeah, Morgan or Triumph into the late 40s. Uh-huh. Uh, most American manufacturers up until the mid, mid-30s, luxury later, uh, production cars earlier transitioned um, because there's nothing I can do. I, if I'm going to put uh, performance and ex- have expectations of that, just I'm rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic because there's no rigidity within the body unless I completely forensically debone it and change the skeletal structure mm-hmm. and see and see all that and put it together with just a financial train wreck. Um, otherwise, if they get past the 60s, I find the quality of construction to be a significant limiter and the extensive use of plastics to be a disaster. Um, Korean War cars, if you're doing a derelict, they're great. If you're doing a reformer, they're a pain in the ass because all the shortage of materials and the pop metal makes it an issue. So I guess it really depends. Probably the easiest would be early 60s uh, because still enough metal going on, large enough scale, so very easy to retrofit powertrain suspension. 
fuel systems, electronics. You know, I've I've always loved those Jaguars, and I know you you sort of expressed your feelings about British cars. I got that well, but, but, but the martyr in me is all over it. I'm dying <laughs> to do a bunch of Jags. In fact, I, I'm drawn to uh, XK120s oh, to yeah. the early Mark sedans, all the way up to like the XJ6 two doors. I think are magnificent. Uh-huh. Even though going into it, I know they have inherent structural problems. Again, because some British pencil pushers said, fine, we'll just chop it, narrow it, turn it into a two-door, but they didn't put a B-pillar in it, so they have enormous flex problems and rest problems, but I'm still game. And I'm uh, I'm a big fan of that 120 Jag, I just and especially the coupes, not necessarily the convertibles or the road yeah. but I love uh, the way that car looks. Yeah, there's magical lines and a glorious greenhouse and a lot more of that that era of design that you appreciate evident in the coupe than the convertible. Yeah, back like uh, the Delages and the Delahays and all those cars, how they look from the side. They're just absolutely beautiful. I, I have to segue back into your business, though. So here you are running this, you and your wife, your team running this extraordinarily successful business. And I just assume it's always been a piece of cake business-wise, right? From no oh, stumbling yeah. blocks, you know? Oh, yeah, we just phone it in. We go on Amazon, order what we need, hire day laborers. They click it together. I quadruple my money and go buy a watch and go on vacation. I, uh, and we'll talk about Super watches easy. in a second. Don't, don't let me forget the watch thing. But somewhere along the line with a lot of people, of course, back in 2008, 9, and 10, businesses fell apart and stuff. But what was, what was Icon 4 buys? What was, what was a big, big struggle that you had, Jonathan? Well, uh, despite my earlier sarcastic reply, um, this is just, if anyone were to fund a business like this or want to dive in and really study it and, and do all those intelligent metrics and analysis, they would never do it. It's just stupid. It is so difficult to scale and so incredibly complex with significant responsibility and liabilities. And when I'm going against the grain all the way through to existing supplier networks and my push for quality and, and a divorcing commoditization of componentry and focusing on quality. It's just a stupid, stupid business. Now, fortunately, I started it because it was a passion and I love it. And even more fortunately, I still do today. Mostly, though, because I've embraced that challenge and embraced that founding ethic and refused to compromise and been lucky to find an audience that allows me to not only not compromise, but to keep pushing north. But, you know, right, of course, we started the brand right in the middle of the economic meltdown. Um, I think partly we got lucky because we had the two brands. So TLC was doing everything as simple as maintenance and oil changes. So in some cases, you had people who realized, oh, boy, there's some rough times here. I better just service my old Land Cruiser and not go buy that new car I wanted. Uh-huh. So that helped us. Mm-hmm. And then on the icon side, I mean, to a certain extent, there were people that were untouched. Um, to another extent, we benefited because we, we, we were met with great success immediately, which was unexpected. And the wait list was so long that people either already had skin in the game because their car was in process yeah. or they were so far down the list that we were lucky and that we experienced very little attrition because um, people had kind of recovered and got their confidence back mm-hmm. and we kept on. And the other, you know, the key, a hidden benefit of that was that we were able to receive, get, fight for, or in some cases they would volunteer support from significant brands that I think in an upmarket they would have never bothered with us. Mm-hmm. But we were able to get serious collaborative support early on from people who knew my ethic, didn't know this new brand, but but knew my history, that I, you know, I think would have been very difficult if the market had been healthy and strong. You know, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but one of the things that impressed me, uh, besides your office, when I walked through your shop with you, I've, I've gone to a lot of people's places of employment. When I walked through your shop, everybody was 
and not only engaged in what they were doing, it felt like comrades. All of your employees, and I did, uh, we took a couple aside and we talked with some very nice people. You you had told me for for every couple of dozen applications, you, you, you only hire one person. How'd you develop your team? That's got to be one of the secrets to your success. I think it is, and at the same time, it could be viewed as one of our Achilles heels. So keep in mind for the first 16 or so years, I was trying to, I mean, I was on the floor building and welding and grinding and crafting right in there with my team Mm -hmm. while trying to manage website and phone sales and corporate structure and engineering. And past a point, I had to kind of give that up because I was not only was I able to hire people who were better at me than in many of those things, but I was just becoming too disjointed there for all my efforts and all of those different responsibilities were suffering. So as we've grown, I've pulled back and I I have less tasks that I'm able to focus on uh, more wholeheartedly and was able to build an epic team uh, of intellect, you know, to, to strengthen all those skills. But basically we grew very organically from an 1100 square foot shop to the current behemoth. Mm-hmm. I learned early on that if you allowed ownership, if you allowed your technicians pride of ownership of seeing a project through from beginning to end versus creating some sort of soulless assembly line, it made a world of difference, not only in the quality of their work, but your ability to retain those employees and to have them in essence be just like our clients, in fact, I feel, ambassadors versus Yep. Paycheck receivers yep. or product buyers. Smart. So I think that's been integral. Now, the Achilles heel side of that is by structuring it in such that two men are responsible from beginning to end on a project, I've greatly hindered my ability to expand and evolve in hiring. Because again, I'm going against the grain, it seems almost on every level. So it's very difficult to find people with the diverse skill set I require, especially in a country that no longer believes that uh, any sort of industrial arts or school classes or tech shop are really worth doing, which I think is a tremendous, tremendous travesty for uh, our society. Um, Don't get me started on that. Uh, So there's there's no schools uh, honoring blue-collar arts it's 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 looked down on which i think is asinine you know what i for example i have more than a couple plumber or contractor clients who are doing just fine but working with their hands mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. so yeah it's difficult to hire it's really mm-hmm. hard to find uh any or all of these skill sets so eventually i may need to rethink that but i, I hope not and i'm fighting it well and that brings me up to just a couple more points, Jonathan. Uh, you had mentioned that business isn't hard. I don't, I don't care unless you're born uh, a Kennedy or you're born wealthy. If you have to make it on your own, it takes smarts and drive. And you use the P word passion. I understand that completely. So if you had to wind back, and it wasn't just a shop guy or gal, but uh, uh, let's say you were taking a young young kid coming out of college. You put your arm around him uh, metaphorically and say, this is what I have learned. If you're going to follow your own path, what would, what would you tell that person? Oh, I'm right all up on that. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, mentoring youth and intern programs and speaking at schools and blah, blah, blah. And um, my one thing, and, and I do this to when I, I'm doing keynotes for corporate and stuff as well, because I don't care how old you are, respect your perspective is what I, my, my common mantra. Because even in like the design sense and design, the leading education resources for that, it, it seems they, they run it like an MBA program and sort of try and brainwash that natural, unique way of looking at design challenges uh, right out of people. And I think it's it's perhaps partially uh, good for employment because then they conform and fit right in that cubicle at the big car company. But I think to a certain extent, it's also responsible for why modern automotive design is just so copycat and, and you smell when it's, it lacks passion and was done by focus group or committee. Mm-hmm. But I think with young people, it's especially important to 
you know, find something you love and then figure out how to make a living doing it. Don't go into something because someone told you to do it or someone else has the expectations. You know, it's so important to do what you love. Mm -hmm. If you're rich and you're angry and your soul is dead, then that's going to be a waste of money because you're going to be a bitter ass. Um, I could have done things, and in fact, my previous career uh, was already taking me in a direction to make way more money than I make here. But I make enough. I support American manufacturers. I support over 50 families. I'm proud of what I do. I go to sleep dreaming it. I wake up looking forward to it. And I can't impress that enough on anyone of any age. It's just so important. Wow. It's wow. critical. That's that. That's incredible. And I know you, uh, I, I'm not certain just how much sleep you get a night, none of my business, but it doesn't seem like all the things we talked about your charities, you're involved with the charity. What's all that about? I, uh, you know, I work while I sleep. Oddly enough, I always tell my clients the dreams are free because I'm like CAD modeling and sleeping. I'm just obsessive, but uh-huh. whatever. Um, yeah, charity I'm on the board of and, and, and very uh, active in a, in a charity called Go Campaign, gocampaign.org, where we have a very simple premise because I've, I've spent throughout my life doing a lot of charity work and uh, came quite disenchanted with large corporate charities when I realized just how wasteful they are. So what Go does is quite simple. Like CNN, we find local heroes around the world. In fact, several of the people we've supported have been CNN heroes later or have won a Nobel Prize and all sorts of great stuff we've seen that we've made happen. But we just identify somebody in a community in the U.S. or abroad who's already doing something and it's already working and making an improvement in opportunities or the lives of children. And we simply come in, we bring them financial and intellectual capital to scale that existing program to make a bigger impact. And uh, it's, I love it. It's kick-ass. Right now, we've partnered with uh, over 120 local heroes in 33 countries around the world. Um, We have specific girl power programs. We have specific North American youth education programs and it's a blast. And when we do all sorts of things with icon, like people want to cut the line at icon. We think that's an uncool thing to do, but we do wait, allow, wait, wait. what do they want to do? They want to cut the line. No one wants to wait. They got the oh. cap oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and cut in front of the other guys. Yep. So we actually have a subtle cut the line program mm-hmm. when I have a build space available. And sometimes I sneak them and hide them myself on spec. We allow people to buy those slots, and it raises considerable money for the charity. We have a huge party here every May where we invite Singer and Emory Motorsports and all the top L.A.-based custom car and motorcycle builders to display, have a big open house party with uh, top-shelf liquor and the best food trucks and gambling. It's a super fun event, and um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Uh, it sounds terrific, and I, I know that event is in May. I think we missed it this year, but I definitely uh, – it, it's in May, isn't it? Yeah, usually it's either the first or second weekend of May. Uh-huh. Well, I hope I get an invite this year. Um, uh, just uh, just a couple quick more questions. The future of self-driving cars, are we, are we all headed there? Personally, I'll probably be the last guy to buy one unless it's the law and I have to. Okay. Um, I've given a lot of thought to this, and, and I do think we're heading there because there are a lot of big business and um, regulatory slash insurance industry uh, benefits to them. And let's face it, a lot of people are driving with their head firmly up their buttocks, so that's another problem. But at the same time, I, um, I have no fear of that as a trend. Even if 90% of new car sales are mandated or preferred to be that, I anticipate it'll actually create a nice new uptick for geeks like me. Hmm. Because my customers and myself, we're all about that reconnection, that visceral man and machine connection that even today's cars rarely have, autonomous or not. There's a massive disconnect and there's a huge traditional appeal there that is being underserved by most car manufacturers even today. 
So what the heck? I welcome it. But I tell you this, I'll be building EVs and hydrogen and microcapacitor, whatever, like microturbine. I'm all into all the emerging motive power systems. Uh-huh. But my customers are going to be hitting the brake themselves, steering themselves, and I, I want to keep that. You know, you turned me on to uh, uh, Bonnie and David of Zelectric down in San Diego, and they couldn't, uh, they're just like me and everybody else. They just, they just couldn't say enough about you and Icon 4 by What an interesting couple approaching a problem a little bit differently than you. But I would say to people that when you get bored with the typical Ferraris and Lamborghinis and exotics, have, have a cup of coffee with you because I think you've got such a different take on the automobile. And I know you, you threatened to kill us uh, about some special projects, but you've got some very, very interesting things coming up in the future. When will those be released to the general public? Well, all but one are, are, are known to the general public, um, and they're mostly in my reformers and one-offs. Um, we're going to be announcing a new production version of our Icon BR and FJ series. So right now, we do one design package, and we call it New School. We're going to be introducing an old school, which is far more under the radar, conservative retro in appearance, but with all the same mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. In the one-off world, uh, the media will be picking up on a magnificent 65 F250 Ford crew cab pickup that we just finished. That's just a rolling sculpture. We have a 58 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud Series 2 derelict that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have a 1949 Mercury Coupe that is a Tesla Eater, 800 foot-pounds of torque, <laughs> uh, oil-cooled, dual-electric motors, transmissionless. We have a 50 Hudson Hornet with a dry sump, blown, intercooled LS9. We have a 1,000 horsepower, 1,000 torque, uh, twin-turbo, Nelson Racing, independent suspension, three-door Suburban, we're turning into a four-door, um, yeah, and more and more and more. And this Ferrari uh, P1800 Volvo one-off, uh, all sorts of stuff. And then the top secret project is probably about a year and a half away, and it's going to blow everyone away, and it's killing me because I just can't wait to shoot my mouth off about it. And it's killing me because uh, I have seen it and stood next to it. And you, you've you got some top secret stuff. And I know it's not just cars, too. There's something about uh, uh, t- you and time that's coming up. And I can't remember. It's a, Is it a watch or? Yeah, I'm, I'm just starting to play with um, the the my goal of getting into other aspects of industrial designs. Like we just did a collaboration with Timberland Boots. And we did a U.S. made, 100% U.S. made, down to the sole, the thread, the leather, the everything, with Timberland in our derelict style. We did that for my charity, and we have a couple pairs left we just put up on the website. So those are Icon derelict boots. Um, but the two big projects, one I'm, I'm most excited and closest to completion is uh, I'm a massive uh, vintage watch nerd, and um, I look at automotive watch company pairings and and find them to be contemporary ones, to be very shallow sort of brand marketing exercises. So I'm going to take a much deeper dive into taking inspiration from transportation designs through the eras in developing, uh, designing, and uh, we're coming out with our own first watch later this year. Swiss made, but I modeled it and designed it 100% myself. I couldn't afford my own engineering team on this. Hmm busy on core products so it's a great learning process and hopefully that goes well and i'm going to continue to uh, keep going also playing with furniture a couple chair designs that uh, i've been prototyping but that's not there yet that sounds a little bit like the bugatti family yeah which i'm glad you say that because on many levels uh, especially protecting the brand by being being ready to say no and not being a yes man now that I have that ability as the brand has grown. Atore Bugatti is, is a driving inspiration for me. Um, every, every decision he made, his, that family's depth and breadth of design and engineering capability is, 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 is remarkable. And the fact that mm-hmm. Bugatti is a name that holds any weight today, mm-hmm. the only reason Audi bothered to buy the name 
is because that man protected the ethic of the brand and what it meant like a lunatic. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I take his lead. Uh, I, I think, first of all, you couldn't have followed in better footsteps. I, I love the fact that you have let, as so many others have that are successful, let their passion uh, put you in the driver's seat of your business. And I, I congratulate you on taking an idea. And as funky, you use the word nerdy, as crazy as it is, there are people out there that once you get once you get tired of the typical old stuff and you can afford to do something different, again, sit, sit down with you, have a cup of coffee, and, and get an entirely different take on the automobile. It's the Disneyland for the car guy, I think. Jonathan, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best contact for you? Oh, I'm pretty approachable. I don't have salesmen or any of that junk. I mean, the website's icon4x4.com. Um, phone number is 818-280-3333. I can't wait to do a couple of things. And number one, as these projects, uh, you roll the stuff out to the uh, the general public, the watches and all the behind the scenes you had shown uh, uh, me and my team when we were up there. I can't, I can't wait to be a part of that. I hope we can. Uh, I would be thrilled to have an invitation to your event next May. And all I can tell people that are listening in is when you're in California, when you're in Los Angeles, oh hell, just come to California just to meet Jonathan Ward and meet his team. It is eye-opening. It's enlightening beyond belief. Uh, it's just lots and lots of fun. Jonathan Ward, Icon 4x4. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I can't wait to uh, to wind up and see you again very shortly. Thank you so much, sir. Sweet. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think. Go to drivewithdavepodcast.com and find out how to leave us a review on iTunes. I hope it's a good one which we would very much appreciate. And there's a way to email us your questions, comments, and who you want on the show as well. All the episodes of Drive With Dave podcast are on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and an overview of all the shows with links can be found on drivewithdave.com. Don't miss an episode. When you subscribe to the podcast, your device will be automatically updated with the new episodes, and old ones will be removed after you've listened to them. No work required. And finally, I hope you also check out our bi-monthly newsletter, which will keep you in the know. And you can sign up at drivewithdave.com.